Welcome to Abuelas en Acción, a podcast for our common good. I am Dr. Rosemary Celaya Alston, and I'm here with my co-host, Marie Dahlstrom. Today, we are going to be talking about the road ahead for racial equity in education with Danielle Gonzalez from the Aspen Institute. During this time of the coronavirus pandemic, economic hardship and racial protests All of our country's institutions are being challenged, including education. The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed the social and economic divide between students as schools have moved to virtual education. It has been extremely hard for children, parents, grandparents, teachers, especially for low-income children of color. Now parents are being forced to make decisions about the health and safety of their children as schools begin reopening. Our teachers are now frontline workers with legitimate concerns about their health and that of their students. A recent New York Times article asked, will this be a lost year for America's children? Education experts are now dealing with the long-term implications of remote learning, vanishing resources, and heightened inequity. Our schools are being challenged in ways never seen in our lifetime. The Aspen Institute has issued a call to action for racial equity and education, and I quote, every path to redeeming the social contract runs through public education, rooting out race as the arbiter of opportunity and outcomes in school is essential to effectively advancing racial justice in the larger society. The solutions need to be short, medium, and long-term, and need to center on racial equity as powerfully as the racial inequities that stand in the way." End quote. Today, we have a, a fantastic guest with us. Her name is Danielle Gonzalez. She is the Managing Director for the Education and Society Program at the Aspen Institute. The program works to inform, influence, and inspire education leaders across policy practice to improve pre-K through 12 education, especially for students of color and students from low-income backgrounds. Previously, Danielle was a senior program officer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, working to advance the foundation's K-12 strategy in key states and developing the foundation's strategy for engaging faith communities in education reform. Danielle has over 15 years of experience in education, philanthropy, policy, and advancing and advocacy, both in pre-K and K-12 education at both the state and national level. She began her career teaching fourth grade in Brownsville, Texas. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here today and looking forward to the conversation. Tell us a little bit, Danielle, about your journey to this point in your life. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I was born and raised in New Mexico, and my family has deep New Mexico roots. We're one of those families who always say, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. And I grew up spending a lot of time growing up uh, with my grandparents, Agapito and Socorro. 
And my grandfather survived three and a half years as a POW in, in World War II in Japan. And he has a story of survival and perseverance and faith and service. And that experience, that story, those, that commitment to service and faith had a tremendous impact on me growing up and really contributed substantially to my journey and to who I've become. And I, I believe that because of him, it's that I wanted to help people. I wanted to make the world a better place. And at the same time, uh, when I was in elementary school was the first time that my younger brother was suspended from school. So he was in second grade the, the first time that he was suspended and then he was suspended again and again. And I now know that he was actively pushed out of school. And at the same time, you know, I did well. I was gifted and I was in sports and I was in all the clubs and all the extracurriculars. And I didn't realize it then, but I know now that our systems are set up to actively push out certain kids. And as a result, my brother ultimately ended up dropping out of school. And at the same time, again, I ended up leaving home, leaving Albuquerque to go to a private four-year college in Washington, D.C., and I ended up graduating and I ended up, as, as you noted, going on to become a teacher and to get a master's degree. Uh, and I spent time teaching in South Texas and I loved it. And I, I do think that being a teacher is the most important job. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, but also the most meaningful thing I've ever done. Um, and as I noted, my brother ended up on a very different path and I could still see um, but it was because of the system. It was because of the systemic barriers that contributed to, to his challenges, to our family's challenges, challenges that our people continue to experience. So I moved back to DC and I wanted to get involved in, in politics and policy and something that could lead to systemic change to make things better for more kids like my brother, more families like mine. And so I worked then uh, in education, I worked in advocacy, I worked in policy, I worked for a couple of foundations, and I've always focused my career on education and on Latinos in particular, um, but on all students of color um, and how the education system just needs to change fundamentally to better serve those students. I know you're going to be talking to us a little bit more about that, but could you tell us a little bit about the Aspen Institute and your work in education and society? Yeah, so the Aspen Institute overall is a large nonprofit that is focused on realizing a more just and equitable society. And the Aspen Institute does this through dialogue, through leadership development, and through direct support. And so on the education side and the education program, we are focused on convening. So we convene system leaders of districts, so superintendents and their chief level staff. We convene state policymakers and state leaders. We also convene congressional staff. Um, and our, our primary focus is what we refer to as a richer vision of student success. And, and by that, I mean creating an education system that is aligned to what we want and what we need education to be to advance um, and protect our system of democracy, to prepare our students for the future of work that we all know is going to be driven by automation and by globalization and working for an education system that acknowledges that in order to thrive in society, we need to be healthy physically, but also socially and emotionally. We need to acknowledge that every single person, every single student deserves to be seen and valued. And that is just a fundamentally different experience from what most black and brown kids get in schools today. Um, so we know that any changes that are happening in education practice and in education policy then need to be done with a very race conscious approach. 
How has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted students and their families? And what can we learn from this pandemic? Yeah, so unfortunately, it's, it's not good news. I think that's no surprise. But, but to your point, I think there's a lot that we can learn from it. Um, in education, as with healthcare, we're seeing not just the effects of this virus, but we're seeing the fallout from hundreds of years of longstanding disparities. Um, so there's disparities in access to reliable and affordable healthcare. There's also disparities in access to reliable and affordable and quality. And by that, we include culturally, and relevant, uh, culturally relevant services. Um, so when it comes to direct experience with the virus, again, in healthcare, we know that our families and our communities are, are suffering. We know that Latinos and African-Americans are much more likely to get infected with the virus and also more likely to die when they're infected. In education, our families are also suffering. And again, it's because we haven't had the same preventative care. Uh, Latino families still don't have access to childcare. We still don't have access to high quality pre-K at the same rates as white students. We still don't have access to broadband internet and high speed internet. We still don't have the same access to technology, to high quality materials, whether that's books, online learning platforms, grade level assignments, to project-based learning. Uh, we have limited access to great teachers, to clear communication. And these are all things that affluent white families tend to take for granted. Um, so I would also note that before the pandemic, our schools didn't have access to the basics. So we didn't have access to hand soap and toilet paper let alone counselors and social workers and nurses and school-based health clinics. So all of that is just compounding the experience. And I think you noted, we, we know that Latinos are being forced with impossible choices right now. Um, and so I think we just need to acknowledge the comprehensive nature of this problem. It's not just a health problem, but it's a societal problem. And so especially thinking about the workforce roles that Latinos hold, um, these choices that they have about you know, going back to work, if you choose to go back to work as a housekeeper or a restaurant worker or a construction worker, um, because we need to pay the rent and because we need to put food on the table, then we're also choosing to put our own health at further risk. Um, many Latino families are being forced to choose. Do you leave the children home alone? Do you leave them with an elderly relative whose own health is at risk? These are impossible choices. And so again, it's just compounding the stress and the trauma that our students are experiencing. And our education systems haven't been responding in a way that tends to that trauma and tends to that stress. Most of the education systems, most schools, especially in the spring, the response was very, uh, very minimalist. It was really focused on just getting devices out, um, just putting up review materials, just providing meals. And, all of that is important all of that matters, um, but it is pretty baseline. Um, and so now schools are trying to be more responsive, um, but, I, but for us, it's really noting the tension um, that this virus is causing because in order to be physically safe, in order to have this physical distance, uh, we, we need to have changes to how we're operating. Um, at the same time, we know that in order to learn, in order for the human brain to actually take in information and to process and apply that information, we as humans need to be not just physically safe, but emotionally safe. And to be emotionally safe, we need connections to family and to friends and to other people. Um, and that's been really hard for schools to, to work through um, and to focus on relationships versus focusing on 
uh, math and devices. Uh, and so as a result, I would say Latino students are just not being well served. Danielle, thank you. All I can do is thank you and your colleagues and the amazing teachers, everybody who's working on behalf of our children. Because um, it, it, to, I know we've talked about it on this podcast. Rosemary and I have spent a lot of time talking about this, how it is devastating for us as grandparents to see what children in this country are dealing with, and in particular, Latinos and other students of color. You, um, you said it so directly and so clear when you were sharing your personal story. Um, and it certainly um, resonated with me um, that uh, if your brother in particular, but for all of us uh, students of color um, throughout the years, schools have, have really pushed us out. And I think um, uh, my personal uh, story is that, and it sounds very similar in many ways to yours, what I found early on is that as long as I've succeeded and I conform to the rules of a system where I did not feel like I was being seen and heard uh, for who I was as a person, but if I followed those rules, then I was seen as sort of the good kid and uh, kept getting reinforced for that. And, and yet, um, there's a price that uh, we pay, ultimately, when we don't feel like the school system sees and hears us. So um, what, okay, we're in, we're kind of um, in a, a challenging time in our country right now. And it, it, in fact, it's a mess in so many ways. What needs to happen, Danielle? Tell us what we need to do for racial equity. What needs to happen for our uh, students of color? Yeah, um, so I wanna speak to the, to the point that you just put on the table and, and reinforced around connection and, and belonging. And for me, part of that is really related to sort of the definition of education in our country, or at least the purpose of education now. And I think we've gotten to a really reductive place where society and policymakers and, and lots of folks really think about education in a very, again, reductive way, that it's about test scores. Um, and, and we know from the test scores that Latinos have not been served well. We know from graduation rates, although those are on the uptick, that Latinos have not been served well. But we really think we need a much more, again, robust and richer definition of what education is for. And I think if we shift our system toward that, then, then we'll be able to make some, some progress. On, on this point of um, belonging, like we know that human belonging matters and we know that connection matters. Um, but but in, in America, in this very white dominant society, we very explicitly and intentionally privilege a certain way of being. So we tell kids that you need to act a certain way to succeed. You need to look and sound a certain way. You need to be a certain way. We've also taught one side of history. We also value really only one language. Uh, and 
and again, in society and education, we, we have come to value the individual over the collective. So we're valuing the individual test score. And so I think that in order to achieve racial equity, we need to understand that we are a collective. We are a collaborative and we are a community. And we learn and grow through relationship. And we know from brain science that learning is relationship-based. Learning is cultural. Learning is uh, developmental. And so we need to shift our whole systems toward that. So we need to have accountability in education extend towards accountability for the system, accountability for the collective, so that it's not just accountability for the student and the teacher. Um, I think we need to make sure that our instructional approaches, our curriculum and our textbooks um, also allow students to learn through experience. Uh, I think we need to do much more to make sure that we're measuring school climate and school culture so that we can better understand the student experience so that we can respond to it. I think we hear often, I, I suspect you and many of the listeners have experienced microaggressions. We need to acknowledge that kids of color experience constant microaggression all day long. And, and our school systems need to be better at responding to that, making sure that students of color feel like they belong in school. Um, and want to be clear with all this, that this isn't to say that, the fo- that a focus on academics or math and reading and writing don't matter. But I think the education system needs to catch up to the acknowledgement that we learn through relationship and a focus on culture and a focus on environment will actually enable academic learning. Um, and so we can learn to read and write and do mathematical computation, but we need to see ourselves and we need to see our stories in the work and we need to belong. And that's a big shift for our education system to make. Wow. What you're saying is definitely going to speak to um, many of our experiences. This is powerful stuff, Danielle. Um, So can you talk about the power that we as parents, families, and community members have in um, holding our school districts accountable, our schools accountable? Because so much of the time, in particular for families uh, like my family of origin, um, both of my parents, were immigrants. Uh, my my 99-year-old mother is still living, um, but uh, they taught us to work hard, and it wasn't part of our immigrant experience to become involved in our school, the schools. Um, uh, and many families, uh, many of our Latino families, they are working so hard and working at maybe two and even three jobs, and see don't see a role for them in their uh, kids' education. What can we as everyday people do? What can we as abuelitas do to uh, advocate for our children and grandchildren? Such a great and important question. And for me, it all comes down to power or the issue of power. And and you asked what what power we have as parents. I would say as parents and and as abuelas, we have all the power in the world. But we also know that power seeds nothing without demand. And so what does that demand look like given all of the other pressures that that our families are experiencing? I think it's a critical place for those of us who have the privilege to use it. Uh, And so that's people like me who have a well-paying job, who I don't have to worry about putting food on the table for me to use my voice and for me to use that voice to equip 
and educate others to use their voice to advocate as well. Um, one of the problems, I think this relates back to my comment about just the individualistic nature of this country, is uh, that we're very focused on ourselves. And people really view power and access and opportunity as a zero-sum game in America. And I think we have to help, help people understand that it's not a zero-sum game, that we need to empower others. Um, and so there's, I think, a couple of primary things that come to mind. One is just around storytelling um, and relationships um, and really building those. And so part of that is helping people understand, again, what the student experience is like. We need to help people uh, communicate better. We need to help educators understand the implications and the unintended consequences of some of their actions. I think most of our educators are very, have very good intentions, um, but they don't realize how things like discipline policies are oppressive and how discipline policies lead to a school to prison pipeline to the story I shared about my brother. Um, we have to help people understand through both stories and data how uh, discipline is disproportionately uh, applied for against students of color. Uh, we have to help people see how to build relationships and how to build trust. Um, and we have to work together. And so I guess one thing I would point to in particular, one promising practice um, is my good friend, Veronica Palmer, who she founded an organization in Aurora, Colorado called RISE. And I would encourage everyone to, to take a look at it, but she has very smartly um, taken the organizing wisdom of all of those who came before us. So from Martin Luther King and SNCC to Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and the farm workers to organize uh, and to take lessons from organizing to organize parents. And so again, it's those with privilege organizing those who can learn and who can be empowered to ask for more and to demand more. And again, this happens in a relationship. Um, and so I would just encourage families to recognize that and to rely on each other and to build relationships. And we can't welcome people into our homes now, but to find ways to welcome people, to bring people into dialogue and to conversation and, and share stories and share experience. And we can't expect that our schools can do it alone. Um, for, for so long, I think that we Americans uh, have really left it up to the schools. I love how you talk about we and our obligation to one another. Rosemary, you talk a lot about that, don't you? I do. I do. Just even how papers are graded or were graded when we were in school, Marie, with red ink, maybe because we put uh, unfortunately, a Spanish word in our narrative or a content of a paper that was due and the markings. I mean, talk about PTSD for me. <laughs> like, every time I saw red ink, I was like, but my other friend didn't get the same red ink. Kind of thing. So what you're talking about, Danielle, is, is so clear about, you know, uh, what Goldman oftentimes talks about the emotional intelligence of a child and how a lot more needs to go into that. Um, and academics are important, but the emotion, if, if a child is lacking or is struggling or challenged in that area, what resources need to be embraced around that family and that child so it's not the identified patient that Marie and I have seen throughout the years that it's a it's a collective whole kind of thing but just the real 
basic kinds of things of red ink and what that does to children in putting them as less than someone else. Yeah. Yes. Well, um, we, Danielle, this has been wonderful. And um, I, I would really encourage the grandparents. Uh, well, first of all, I need to say you parents, including you, Danielle, I know you are all doing amazing work and have been under such pressure um, uh, during this pandemic to make sure that, you know, your kids, our kids are all receiving the education they need and deserve. Um, but I also would like to shout, uh, give a shout out to the grandparents. Um, I know that uh, both Rosemary and I are involved in the um, distance learning of our grandchildren. And I know that it is, it's a collective uh, responsibility. We need each other and depend on one another. And we need to get past the individualism that we're seeing in this country right now, because we can see the devastation that has happened to our country in so many ways during the pandemic. And now with all of the, the impact, the, the fires and tornadoes and hurricanes, all of these natural disasters that are happening due to climate change, we need each other for sure. So thank you so much, Danielle, for being with us. Um, we uh, like to end with action steps. So um, Danielle, are there some action steps that you'd like to offer to our listeners? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, so there, there are a few. The, the first one, I think, is where we just left off um, in terms of uh, getting educated ourselves. And I would say, don't be afraid to ask questions. So ask questions about access to social workers and counselors and school psychologists that we can get educated about the learning plan. As, as I mentioned, there has been so much focus on devices, um, but we need to know more about content and about engagement and books and lessons. So ask, what, what is the learning plan here? Is it grade level? That's one of the things that so many Latino and African-American kids lack is access to grade level content. We need to ask, how is the school measuring engagement? Are they measuring for authentic engagement? Are students actively uh, engaging in the content or are they just logging on? We need to ask, um, that to, to know that the kids are also connected emotionally. So understanding what is the school there to, what is the school doing there to ensure that there's emotional connection. Um, and then to my point about building relationships and building trusting relationships, I think continuing to reach out uh, and build a relationship with the teacher and with the principal and with a parent liaison, if that exists, uh, particularly given the challenges of remote learning, as you just mentioned, uh, I think more and more families are building relationships with the IT or tech support than the teachers these days. <laughs> Um, but we need to reach out and we need to share with our educators what's working and what's not working. I, I can tell you, you know, I reached out to, to the teacher just this morning and I said, you know, you're sending me these emails that say week five and week four. Like, I don't know what's week five. Tell me the date. And so I think <laughs> yes. right. feedback right. about what's working and what's not. And we also need to ask for support. Um, and, it, and I think this is critical. We don't get all of the services that we qualify for. Uh, and so I would encourage families to ask for connections to health providers and ask for connections to mental health providers and ask 
for social services. Um, and finally, I would just say to uh, last piece of advice is just to leverage all of the social capital that we have in our community. We have numbers, we have relationships, we have trust in our, in our comadres and our vecinos and our neighbors and our family. Um, and we can be a force to be reckoned with. So I would just encourage people to collaborate, to communicate and to organize uh, so that we can't be ignored. I totally agree. In Oregon, I was volunteering with a, a principal and a superintendent that were now retired. And it was myself and another advocate. And some of the Latino families would call us. And as a group, we would make appointments to go into the school and talk about the discipline of a child or the academic withdrawal of a child. And when they knew we were coming in, they were scared because we knew what we were talking about, but we would come in with the parents themselves or the grandparents themselves. I think there are creative ways in which we can, we can do some of this stuff right now, today, with that social capital, Danielle, you are correct, in those that are retired that could go and help advocate for, on behalf that don't have all the right words or terminology to say to um, a principal or a vice principal in terms of what the issues may be as a child. So I, I charm that. I think there are different ways we can do this that don't require the money and the dollar bill behind it. Well, thank you again, Danielle, for joining us. This has been wonderful. Um, uh, there is, we, we can make a difference. In addition to what Danielle has shared, um, Rosemary, do you have any other action steps? No, I think one of our good friends um, shared that um, when she goes out to the store or whatever, she's wearing a mask that says, please vote. Yes, I absolutely. Think, I, can't, I think there's so much confusion for um, many of our communities of colors and Native Americans as well of what they're being barraged with and what really is important for their communities and why the vote, their vote counts. So please, if you are not sure if you are registered to vote, you can go to votolatino.org. See if you're registered. You can put your address and zip code in and it will direct you in order to see if you, if you are registered. If not, in many states, you can still register and vote mark your calendar, talk to your family and friends about the importance of voting and help them figure out a plan in order to cast their vote. If you are able, we encourage community members to vote in person. The U.S. Postal Service will be inundated with mail-in ballots due to the pandemic. Thank you all for joining us. Please follow us on Twitter at Abuelas en Acción. We look forward to having you with us next time here on Abuelas en Acción. Gracias.